This coming November will mark the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy by Lee Harvey Oswald. Today on Uncommon Knowledge, a man who knew Lee Harvey Oswald. Paul Gregory on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Now a fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford, Paul Gregory holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma and a doctorate in economics from Harvard. Dr. Gregory is a leading figure in the study of the Soviet economy and now the Russian economy, and his textbook on the Russian economy remained for many years in use in classrooms across the country. But what interests us today is not Dr. Gregory's academic career, but one summer in 1962. <clears throat> From Dr. Gregory's new book, The Oswalds. From June through mid-September of 1962, I was the sole companion of Lee Harvey and Marina Oswald outside of Lee's immediate family. I visited this young married couple often. I drove them around Fort Worth in my family's yellow Buick as we talked shopped, and explored the city. Paul, welcome. Pleased to be here. How did it come to be that you drove Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife Marina around Fort Worth in your family's yellow Buick? It so happened that when Lee returned to the United States in June of 1962 uh, with Marina, uh, he had in mind that he would get a high-paying job. We, we need to explain. He returned to the United States in 1962 from? From Minsk, USSR, sort of a backwater provincial city. But he had defected from the United States to the Soviet Union in 1959. Correct. Lived there for three years. Yes. And returned in 1962 with his wife, a Russian, Marina. He returned with Marina and an infant daughter, June. Right. Uh, he had in mind that he would get a high-paying job based upon his experience of three years behind the Iron Curtain and based upon his knowledge of Russian. My father, who is Russian, taught uh, Russian at the public library and was known as someone who could attest to knowledge of Russian. Mm -hmm. So the Texas Employment Agency sent Lee to my father's office at Continental Life Building. And uh, my father had no idea who this young fellow was, but he picked a book off his sh shelf. Lee read it well. Uh, they had in Russian. In Russian. Mm -hmm. um, Lee read it well. They conversed in Russian, and his conversational Russian was, was quite good. My father wrote him a to whom it may concern. Uh, my father was, of course, curious, who is this young fellow who's been three years behind the Iron Curtain, invited him to lunch, asked some, uh, some not terribly probing questions, didn't get much of an answer. And when uh, one thing to set the scene was that Lee had on a woolen suit of Soviet manufacture, and he was sweating the whole time uh, because it was over 100 degrees in Texas. But when they parted, Lee gave my father his phone number, said, come and see us, you can meet my wife, and that's how it started. And your dad was born in Siberia and came to this country in the early 20s as a, as a young man. Correct. But by the time he meets Lee Harvey Oswald, he's a middle-class American, a petroleum engineer, as I recall. Yes. All right. So... Um, what happened next? Your, your father meets this man. He speaks good Russian. He's intriguing. We need to get you into the picture. Yeah, he, sp he speaks good Russian, but ungrammatical Russian, oh. which is uh, a significant point because there were uh, conspiracy theories based upon his being trained in some special language I school. I see. Uh, I came in because my father, when he returned from the office, said, I met an interesting young guy. He's, he lived in the Soviet Union. And, uh, and should we go visit? So we, my father called, Lee said, come on over. Did you speak Russian at home? Yes. All right. Uh, not, not as well as I should, but I, I did. We got in the car, 
go to uh, Lee's brother's house, Robert. Uh, there we met Lee, and uh, Lee introduced us to Marina. So at that point, I knew Lee, Marina, and June, the daughter. The ba who was an infant. Six months Six or months so. old. Mm -hmm. Now, you're 21 years old. Marina's 21 years old. Lee's a little older. He's 24. 24 years old. And you spent the summer together. So here's, here's one piece of uh, uh, why. You wanted to practice Russian, or Marina wanted to practice Russian, but um, you were already a college kid. You were good at playing tennis. I know you and I have been friends, Paul. Yeah. I should disclose that we've been friends for years. You love tennis. You must have been having fun. I, were I not having fun, I would not have done it. Uh, the the idea uh, was that I would go to their house regularly. I could talk to someone fresh out of the Soviet Union. And remember, this was the height of the Cold War. Yes. So someone direct from the Soviet Union was a rarity. Uh, so it was an opportunity for me to learn something about contemporary Russia for that, or the USSR for that time. It was an opportunity to, sp to speak conversational Russian. And when we did speak, I, I, I don't think I exchanged one word of English with Lee. So Lee participated in this uh, uh, Russian language So he business. wanted to keep up his Russian. Very much so. And in fact, that was a point of contention. And it actually resulted in an explosion from Lee in our house because we had guests who were Russian from Dallas and they were encouraging Marina to learn English. So this is, this is somewhat later, later, during, this later is during the summer. The August, mid-August, late August. And your mother, as I recall, puts on a dinner party for yes. the, what did you call them, the Fort Worth Russians? No, the Dallas the, the Russians. The Dallas Russians, yeah. a community of Russians. Yeah. All right, I'm sorry, but go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, but it did lead to an explosion where the guests from Dallas were saying, Marina, you must learn some English. Marina, I think, knew, knew maybe two words of English. And Lee exploded saying, uh, that will ruin my Russian if I have to speak English with my wife. And the reaction of the Dallas Russians was, what a, what a pig. Oh, I see. But it was real anger that you saw in him. Yes. All right. So if I run into you, we're now, you meet them in June, and you spend the summer together speaking Russian with Leah Harvey Oswald and Marina. So let's say I run into you in July. You've been spending a few weeks with them. You know them pretty well at this point. And you and I are friends, and I say to my 21-year-old friend, Paul, what are they like? What are they like? That's the hardest question of all to, to answer uh, because it was very hard to form an impression of Lee. He was kind of a neutral. He didn't say much. When he did say something, uh, it was often to divert you. So an example being, did he have a high school degree? Uh, it was said, or somehow it came up in our conversations, that Lee went to Arlington Heights High, which was our mutual, would have been our mutual uh, high school. And uh, I kept probing a little bit. You know, when did you graduate? How did you, maybe we... You might have had friends in common. You know, maybe we had friends in common, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And he was a little bit older than I. But he would shrug and he would sort of give the impression that, that he wanted to give, namely that he was a high school graduate. So it wasn't until I actually took Lee and Marina in the yellow Buick uh, to Arlington Heights High that I, I could see he really didn't know this place, you know. And in reality, he'd spent about a month or a month and a half at Arlington Heights, and then he went on to join the Marines. So the question was, what, what were they like? Lee was very hard to read. Did he like you? Did he not like you? I had absolutely no idea. With Marina, it was different. She and I really became friends. Supposedly, she was teaching me Russian, but it turned out there was very little Russian language component to what we were doing. But at the very beginning, we... But you did speak in Russian. Yes. I see. But at, it's not as if you sat and had formal conversational sessions. No, not, not, not learning, uh, you know, not language instruction. Yes. Um, but um, we had agreed at the very beginning 
that uh, we would pay, I would pay a Marina for her lessons. The, the last evening, which would have been mid-September, uh, I bring in a check and my father and I had talked about, well, you know, what should we pay? Who, who knows what we should pay? And the amount we decided on was $35, which for Marina was a fortune. And, uh, but Marina, seeing the check, said, friends don't take money from friends. Uh -huh. But it, we insisted, of course, and she took the money and went to Montgomery Wards, which was down the street, and spent it all. For her, this was a, a huge amount of money. And so, I, uh, forgive me if this is indelicate, but you, you, you and she had a real friendship. You weren't flirting with her because you were in the presence of her husband. He was there all the time. No. No. Uh, the first lesson, if we, let's call it a lesson, I go expecting Lee and Marina. They lived on Mercedes Street near Montgomery Wards, a very poor part of town. Uh, ring the doorbell. Um, Marina answers, no Lee. I kept looking around, where's Lee? Uh, wasn't, there was no Lee, and so we had a rather strained conversation. It was very difficult to understand her at the beginning. I see. Uh, so we had a very strained conversation. Uh, Lee then comes to the house, and he, everything was on foot or bus, so perhaps he got delayed by a bus schedule or something. Loaded with uh, high-powered books or intellectual books from the Fort Worth Public Library. But uh, this was the only time that I and Marina were alone together. And in reading about Lee in Minsk, uh, he would not let bachelors in the apartment, either whether he was there or not there. So he was a very jealous person. So I'm, st I'm still trying to figure out, did he do it on purpose? Was it a bus schedule problem? Oh, was he testing you? In a or, sense? well, I, I kind of doubt that, but it, it was contrary to his character. And indeed, we were the same age. I, I was a pretty good looking guy at that time. Marina was quite beautiful, as far as I could see. So um, uh, that was a rare, uh, uh, a one-time singular occurrence, right. yes. Right, right. So. So she, he was neutral, but you enjoyed her company. That was a real friendship. Yes. And you enjoyed showing her around because she was new to America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Here's the other piece of this that, as I read about that summer, comes right to the front of my mind. Your father is no fan of Soviet Russia. And you're, you made this point yourself a moment ago. This is at the height of the Cold War. The Army McCarthy hearings were less than a decade earlier. Mm -hmm. And yet here you are spending a summer. You and Marina were the ones who were real friends, but you're in the presence, except for that one moment when you were briefly alone with 30 her. Minutes, see. 30 minutes, say. 30 minutes. Aside from that, you're with Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm -hmm. And Lee Harvey Oswald defected to the Soviet Union. What, what did your family make of that? Did you and your father say, should I spend time with him? Or how did you get, did, how did you process that large fact about Lee and Marina Oswald? Well, my father and I talked about this and he took an immediate dislike to Lee, but we did sort of a cost benefit analysis and the attraction of being able to spend time with a newcomer from Russia really overwhelmed uh, this, this reservation. Uh, the Dallas Russians, there were more of them than Fort Worth Russians, were a Twitter because here's a young woman fresh out of the Soviet Union, uh, grew up in Leningrad, and for them that would have been Petersburg. Yes, yes. Uh, so they were a Twitter. Let's, let's go meet this, this young lady. She probably needs us to take care of her. She needs uh, help. She needs furniture. They wanted to welcome her. Th they wanted to welcome her, but the the reservation was this no good character she she married and so they were it was kind of comical they were they were telephoning my father well you know what is paul seeing what does he what does he say about meeting this this uh woman from russia uh they called up a lawyer fort worth lawyer married to one of the 
uh, Fort Worth Russians and to make sure that the CI, that the FBI is appropriately uh, tracking Lee. And the answer came, that eventually came back was, it's okay to meet. And, and we arranged this meeting at our house in late August, I would I say. See. Mm -hmm. I see. So they were pro-Marina, but very wary of Lee they, for precisely this. Re and you and your father talked over the, yeah. the, 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 the difficulty that he'd been a defector. All right. This is the summer of 1962. The last meeting took place when? In September? Mid-September. And how did you say goodbye? Off you went to Norman, Oklahoma to go back to the University of Oklahoma. By, by that time, uh, they had a new set of protectors, much to... Uh, Lee's chagrin, namely the Dallas Russians, sort of took over the role that I was playing, taking them to growth, buy groceries, taking them to Leonard's department store, uh, and so on. So uh, I characterize this as Lee keeping Marina in, in a gilded cage, although it wasn't gilded. He wanted her not to have any contacts, and so uh, particularly with those who might encourage her to learn English. I see. So um, uh, the, the parting was quite simple, you know, goodbye, l let's stay in touch. Uh, shortly thereafter, they, the Dallas Russians convinced them to move to Dallas. Let's keep in touch. Here's the $35 check. Uh, I don't take money. We, we don't take money from friends in, in Russia. And then I left. And I did not hear from them again, largely because they'd moved to Dallas, until um, shortly before uh, Thanksgiving of 62. Mm. All right, let's go forward then, a year and a couple of months to November 22, 1963. You're uh, an undergraduate at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. How did you hear that the president had been shot and how did you learn that it was your friend, Lee Harvey Oswald? That's, um, I had class that day at noon. It was in the library, and it was a Russian language course. Uh, Ken Studebaker, a colleague, came in. President's been shot, no classes. I head for the student union where I knew there was a large screen TV, which meant this, this big in those days. There were about 60 of us. We sat on the carpet. I listened to Cronkite declare J that JFK had died. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Kept sitting there. Uh, they're bringing in a suspect. Uh, it's a commotion, and there I see uh, someone being brought in, uh, bruised, mm -hmm. uh, bruised in a white T-shirt, bloody, uh, black eye. I said, that's Lee, Har Lee Oswald. I didn't even know his middle name. That's Lee Oswald. So you had two shocks in short order. First, that the President of the United States had been assassinated, and second, that just months before, you had been spending a summer with the assassin, correct? And uh, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't ordinarily like questions that are of the nature of how did that make you feel? But in this case, it just seems. How, how did you feel at that moment, Paul? Uh, I felt um, I really need someone to talk to. Mm, mm. Uh, it's a strange reaction. I, I need someone to share this with. My roommate, who is also my best friend, was out of town. I called my mother about four or five in the evening, uh, and it was very short. Uh, had they realized it home? Oh, yeah. They had. Yeah, I said, <clears throat> it looks to me like it's Lee. And my mother only knew Lee from that dinner party, uh, and uh, she basically said, yes, we know it as well. And I said, goodbye. And that was the, the conversation. And then eventually I ended up in our student apartment all by myself. So I had this huge secret. Mm. Uh, that uh, I wished to share but was unable to share. From your book, Paul, The Oswalds, remarkably, Lee's actions on November 22, 1963 did not surprise me. 
Rather, it was as if the pieces of a puzzle were falling into place. Close quote. How is that so? You had no inkling during the summer that you spent with Lee and Marina that he might do anything like this, but it made sense when you, once you learned he had done it. Yeah. Somehow, and it would be hard for me to explain, I, I picked up the fact that he had delusions of grandeur. I knew he was serious about his Marxism. And, this and how, is, did that, how did that evidence itself? Um, I didn't know it at the time. I did know, you know, he, he did sort of show me the types of material he was reading. Uh, it was only when I dug deeply into the Warren Commission report that I found some of his writings on Marxism. Uh, and these writings w were not like a couple of paragraphs. They were maybe like um, 600, uh, 800 words, mm -hmm. say. And these writings indicated to me that he knew the buzzwords of Marxism, socialism, he surplus value, et cetera. But this is much later, after the Warren this, Commission. This is after I was doing my own investigation. Right, but at the time, the at, pieces seemed to it at, seemed sensible to, or uh, plausible to you. Correct. Uh, I knew that he had um, delusions of grandeur, namely he was going to publish with a major publisher, his historic diary, they were going to have a nice uh, he upper. He boasted about this kind of thing. Yes, and he, in fact, he, he was trying to get, say, at least my father's opinion about the publishability of, of his works his on, which he was going, on which he was going to live, and they were gonna live well. So I somehow picked up delusions of grandeur. Um, I picked up the fact that he, interestingly, did not want, as a, as a Marxist favoring a, a proletarian state, uh, he could not stand to, for anyone to think of him as a, as a manual worker. So he would go to great lengths to conceal this, such as he, he had a job as a welder. Was the welder job that he was able to he, find? Right? And uh, he would he he dressed very neatly, you know. Even though they were very poor, he dressed neatly, and he dressed neatly in Fort Worth, and he dressed neatly in, back in Minsk as well. So he wanted to hide the fact that he was a, uh, a manual worker. Uh, and he would go well-dressed, not in a suit, but he would go well-dressed to work. He'd probably change there. Uh, all of this going back to how did, how did I put all this right. together? And you'd seen flashes of temper. Uh, uh, extreme flashes of temper. Uh, when Marina happened to fall backwards off of the stoop to their apartment and he was yelling and screaming at her where I was worried about her perhaps needing hospitalization. There, were, there was evidence of physical abuse, such as a black eye. That you saw during the summer? You yes, saw, he, yes. Marina had a black eye. Yeah, I, I, I went to the apartment, she opened the door, there was the black eye. Lee was there as well. She gave me a look, don't ask. So uh, somehow I put all these together and I, didn't go all the way down the list. There, there are probably more indicators. But um, somehow when I saw him th for about 10 minutes, uh, I thought to myself, well, you know, the FBI knew who this guy was. They had interviewed him. So he would be someone they would, they would reach out for. In fact, you just, you just mentioned a moment ago that the Dallas Russians took pains to make sure that the FBI was aware yes, of his presence yes, in yes, Fort Worth. Yes, right. yes, yes. <clears throat> uh, somehow it all fell into place. All right. And, uh, you know, the, the formula whereby they fell into place, I can't give you, but they fell into place. And I never doubted it after that. Mm. So let's go through the about 48 hours after the shooting here very quickly, because this is the last 48 hours of his life. As you uh, uh, sum it up here in the Oswalds. After firing the shots, Lee Harvey Oswald left the building, the Texas School Book Repository, fled on a city bus and then taxi. In a panic, he cut a suspicious figure. An alert policeman, Officer J.D. Tippett, stopped Oswald. And as Tippett gets out of his cruiser to approach Oswald, Oswald fires five shots. Four of them hit Tippett, and he's killed. And Lee Harvey Oswald is apprehended soon afterward. He flees to a movie theater. He's apprehended, he still has the pistol. 
with him, with which he shot Officer Tippett. So he's taken into custody at this point. He's picked up for shooting Tippett, and soon thereafter, the police put it together that he was in the mm. Texas Book Depository. The rifle is found there, yeah. all of that. And then on November 24th, police are taking Oswald from mm -hmm. Dallas headquarters. They want to get him to the county jail, which is more secure. And Jack Ruby, a Dallas nightclub owner, approaches, raises a pistol, shoots once, and kills Lee Harvey Oswald. He's declared dead at the Parkland Hospital, the same hospital where 48 hours earlier John Kennedy was declared dead. How did you learn of Lee Harvey Oswald's death, and what was your response to that? Um, I was one of, the, one of the few who were watching live TV. It happened on live TV, yes. It happened on live TV, so. Shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. But There's to tell the truth, by that time, it, I felt as if I were watching some kind of theater piece that's taking place somewhere far away. And it seems had, begun to seem surreal It, it was surreal, yeah. And, and that I was somehow a part of this seemed sur surreal to me. So um, I didn't feel any particular emotion. You know, this is by someone I knew who has just been shot, et cetera. The one sort of technical question that interested me was the, the actual gunshot wound because it, it went into the stomach. I had looked at the repeats. I could see that he was shot in the stomach and I felt surely Parkland could save someone from a stomach wound. So it, it came as a shock to hear that he had died. And by the way, at this time, my father, who translated for Marina in the aftermath of the assassination, he's the one who took the news to Marina in the uh, office of the sheriff of uh, Irving, Texas. All right. So now we, Lee Harvey, the president is dead. Lee Harvey Oswald is dead. When did the FBI come for you? Uh, the FBI, FBI never came. It was the Secret Service. I'm sorry, Secret no, Service. No, it's, it's oh, a, right. a natural question. In fact, it's, it's an interesting question because the Secret Service was convinced that the local FBI had botched the, the, the matter because they knew there was a Lee Harvey Oswald. They knew Lee, about him. Yes. They, they knew about him. He had actually come in a week or so earlier threatening them. So the Secret Service was, was quite, quite irate at the failures of the FBI. So uh, it was the Secret Service that I had dealings with, and it was the Secret Service that my father had dealings with, uh, but the question was: Well, when did when did you for, when did the Secret Service then come find you? Nine a.m. Uh, the next morning, November twenty-third. Yes, the day before Lee is shot. Yes. All right. So in the book, you talk about you're interviewed by uh, Secret Service, then you're interviewed by a representative of the Warren Commission. These interviews go on for some time. Yeah. So you're interviewed. They pick you. you they come to you the next morning. Marina Oswald is sequestered in a hotel, the Six Flags Hotel. Not, not yet. Not yet. Mm -hmm. well, so get us there. What I want to get to is your dad. What was fascinating was this for five days, she's questioned over and over and over again. And your father translates. And you call that episode, that period of her questioning, uh, I think you used the first phrase, the word catastrophe. Why was that? Well, it was a, well, where we're going here, Paul, now, now it's happened. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we're approaching what people think of it then and now. And so the question, the immediate question is the competence with which in the immediate aftermath of the death of a president of the United States, officials behave. Well, from our perspective, the FBI behaved very poorly. Uh, I'm sure they would say they, something they different, but you have to consider the context, which was the president has been killed by a lone, perhaps by a lone gun. But they didn't know that for sure, and, right? Uh, <clears throat> uh, we can get to it, but I immediately ruled out in my own testimony the, the notion of a conspiracy. But you have to remember that in the, in the immediate aftermath, we didn't know 
you know, was this retribution for the Cuban Missile Crisis? Was it something else? And we now know what was going on in Moscow at the time. So, uh, and and it, your your book is good not only on your personal account but on matters such as what was going on in Moscow. Mm -hmm. They were terrified yes. that they'd be blamed. Yes. and that this might lead to some kind of confrontation with the United States yeah. for which they were felt totally unprepared. Correct. All right. Correct. All right, but back but, to your dad and you and your experience. Yeah, no, no, but um, uh, remember that um, they had no idea. Is this an organized conspiracy? Perhaps other um, important members of government are being targeted. Uh, Marina was not read her Miranda rights. Uh, they kept her sequestered largely to have access to her to answer the key question, which in their mind was who took the photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald in black holding the uh, rifle uh, with the, the tippet pistol at his side. And she was very reluctant to admit that. So and That she had taken the photo. That, that she had taken the, the right. photo. Not, not, there was no other, con there was no conspirator yeah. who had taken and, the photo. And, and right. that was a major piece of evidence that, that there was no conspiracy. In fact, she finally, at my father's prodding, you know, said, yes, yes, I took the, the picture. And uh, when I took the picture, I laughed at Lee for such a silly thing. And that scorn of Marina, I think, was a significant factor explaining his, his own actions, Lee's actions. All right. So um, we have, I'm going to hold this up to the camera again because the whole book is fascinating and we just don't have time to proceed at the pace of a book. But there are investigations and investigations and investigations and first the Secret Service questions you and your father translates for Marina, then the Warren Commission is established. All of this goes on for months. When did it feel over? Never. It was something that, uh, you know, a natural question is, why did you wait 60 years? Yes. And the answer is, we felt a deep sense of shame that we had. Why did you wait 60 years to write this yeah, book? Yes. Why did I wait 60 years to write the book? We felt, that our family felt a deep sense of shame and also a sense of danger because of all the conspiracy theories that were being spun. Uh, my father was in the oil business. We belonged to Rivercrest Country Club where the high rollers from the oil patch uh, hung out. Um, we knew that this guy had uh, deserted. We knew this guy had defected to Soviet Union, had thrown his passport on the desk of the consular official. So this is something we didn't want anyone else to know about. And in fact, I think you and I were among the early ones to whom I I, I no, said, I, you know, I, I knew this guy. I know, but you and I had been friends for years yeah. before you even mentioned it. Yeah. I, you took me totally by surprise mm -hmm. some years ago when you mentioned this. So um, even now I feel that I've lost some privacy in, in writing this, in writing this book. But uh, there, there was also a practical reason for not wanting this information out. And it was that we probably realized very early there were going to be conspiracy theories. And uh, there are conspiracy theories that involve me, that involve my father, that involve my father as a representative of the oil industry, as a representative of JFK. And although we, we seem to escape the worst of the conspiracy theories, this was a, cons a consideration. Mm. And you write that one, that's the reason for waiting. And the reason for writing the book is that friends of yours and at this stage of your Including career, you. at this stage of your career, your your principal, you started life as an economist. At this stage of your career, you oversee the investigation of the archives, Russian Soviet archives at the Hoover Institution. You're fundamentally a historian, mm -hmm. and you suggest that friends of historians in your circle said, "Paul, you have something to add to the record." Is this correct? Correct. All right. So let's go to the, in my judgment, there are two very large questions that reverberate 
to this day, six decades later, and one is whether there was indeed a conspiracy. The Oswalds, you write this yourself, decades later, only a third of Americans believe the Warren Commission's conclusion that one man killed JFK. Remarkably, in this age of extreme partisanship, there is agreement across age, gender, race, education, and party affiliation that our 35th president was gunned down by a conspiracy. And yet, when the Secret Service asked you if you thought there might be a conspiracy, you replied. No. Um, and I think I have some pretty good reasons for saying no. One is we tend to grossly underestimate Lee Harvey Oswald. He was dyslexic. He could not write. He could not spell. He could not graduate from high school. He made a mess of the Marine he Corps. He made a mess of the Marines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I saw a different Oswald. This is an, an Oswald who was able to stay in the Soviet Union, even though the Politburo wanted to kick him out. It was someone who was able to convince the Moscow consulate to give him back his passport and even lend him the money to return home. Uh, he was able to uh, go to, to travel rather freely, New Orleans, Mexico City, on $1.25 an hour. So if you... And also the linguistic ability. And the linguistic ability. There are people ability. who live in a foreign country yeah. for their entire life and never pick up the language. In yeah. three years, he's become conversational in Russian, as your father attested. Correct. All Correct. right. So uh, if you look at all these characteristics plus motive, which I think is evident, history books, wife scorn, I'm going to show, my, show Marina that I am something, I am somebody. So if, if you add all these things together, he, he was the perfect, what I call low-tech assassin. It was, um, cost him about two or $300 to get all the equipment, a bus ticket, to escape with, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot of the skepticism about the Warren report, which says he did it and he did it alone, uh, rests upon the fact that, that he didn't seem to have the tools. In my view, he had all the tools. The most important was the motive and his, his persistency. Uh, it's quite often forgotten that he did attempt to assassinate General Walker a major political we'll figure. In a moment, yes. Uh, he, he did, uh, and he, he planned meticulously the murder of Walker. So this was not uh, a... So you, you know. also said, as I recall, you said to the Secret Service, if I were organizing a conspiracy, fill us uh, in This was in the car uh, oh. the day after the assassination on the way from Norman, Oklahoma to Oklahoma City. I said, if I were to organize an assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald would have been the last one I would have recruited. He's not a leader, and who would, and he's not a follower. If, if he were a leader, who in the world would he find foolish enough to follow him? And he definitely was not a follower. He marched to his own drummer his, his entire life. So when I had all these things together, I had no trouble. All right. Um, Paul, how do you answer? Let's take a look at a very brief excerpt from the film JFK. It's been only a month ago. UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson was spit on and hit. There had already been several attempts on De Gaulle's life in France. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have, and it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. All right. So... There you have Oliver Stone, the producer of JFK. There had been attempts on de Gaulle's life. There was a man opening an, an umbrella. The Secret Service presence was much too small. They left all these windows unchecked, and the president was in a limousine without a, without a, a, a bulletproof uh, bubble over him. And so how do you reply to all of this? Uh, by not replying. I see. If... Uh, I allowed myself to get into that sinkhole, I, I would still be in that sinkhole. Uh, the, the, my, my goal was to write about things that I knew and had witnessed or my father had witnessed. Uh, so um, one of the most interesting 
conversations I had was with the chief of the Secret Service on the day of the assassination, Mike Howard, mm -hmm. who is alive at 92. Mm. Uh, and everything that we just saw on that on those clips, he would have a good refutation for. Yes. Uh, but um, if, you, if you look at, at my, my book and at reviews, if you're a conspiracy theory, you hate this book. If you, if you uh, believe Oswald did it and did it alone, then you're very happy with this book. So couple, another couple of questions on this question of conspiracy. That the limousine did slow down to make that sharp turn as it goes through Dealey Plaza. And I have to say what came to my mind was the assassination some decades earlier of Archduke Franz Josef in Sarajevo. Because in a carriage. his 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 yeah. chauffeur got confused and took a wrong turn and had to back out of an alley and the car stalled as he was backing. In other words, there is this element of sheer chance, contingency, human incompetence that enters into history. And you would account Lee Harvey Oswald, a disturbed Marxist who's been trained in the Marines how to handle a rifle, reads in the newspaper that a, the president's going to be passing underneath his window. And that's what happened. Correct. All right. So I just want to frame it up one more time. After six decades of living with your knowledge of the assassin, you have not the slightest doubt that he acted alone. You are correct. All right. So here's the second sort of big um, aspect or question about the assassination that seems to me to still live with us. And to put it crudely, it's whether Lee Harvey Oswald pulled the trigger or America pulled the trigger. Jim Pearson, James Pearson, the author of Camelot and the Cultural Revolution. Now, this is a long quotation, but you'll understand the importance of, you'll understand why I'm using it. James Pearson writes, immediately after the assassination, leading journalists and political figures insisted that the president was a victim of a climate of hate in Dallas and across the nation. James Reston of the New York Times publishes a front page column the day after the assassination under the title, Kennedy, a victim of violent streak he sought to curb in nation. Syndicated newspaper columnist Drew Pearson wrote that JFK was a victim of a hate drive. Senator Mike Mansfield, the great figure of the Senate in those days, attributed the assassination to, quote, bigotry, hatred, and prejudice, close quote. So the argument here is that Dallas is a very conservative town and that John Kennedy is in some way or another killed by conservative extremists or bigots or by America itself that creates this atmosphere of hatred that affects Lee Harvey Oswald. Do you buy that? No, not at all. Uh, I think if you look at the moment JFK was shot and killed, uh, he was near the end of the motorcade route uh, on his way onto the freeway where he would have been going at a considerable speed. Safe, essentially. He'd be safe. Um, at that point, the Dallas community said, breathed a sigh of relief, saying he's gotten a very enthusiastic reception, uh, almost a frenzied crowd. My father, by the way, saw him at the Texas Hotel in Fort Worth two or three hours earlier giving an address. So as far as Dallas was concerned, they've passed the test. You know, we're, not, uh, we're not a hateful community. We welcome the president with uh, enormous enthusiasm. Uh, the, the problem for this hate argument, and there, there were uh, apparently some, uh, some ads placed in newspapers. Uh, Anti-Kennedy anti ads, anti yes. Anti-Kennedy. Yes. Um, and the dealies, the newspaper was a conservative, one of the newspapers in town was a very conservative well, the, newspaper. He, then the problem is he's shot by a, a Marxist commie. You know, that's, that's, that's the problem. And, um, you know. So, so it, can we hold, hold that? So, so police learned, you mentioned Edwin Walker a moment yes. ago. After Oswald shoots the president, police learned that earlier the same year he had attempted to shoot, and this is an important 
episode that tends to get blotted out by the, mm -hmm. of course, but still, earlier, months earlier, he attempts to shoot General Edwin Walker. Well, the police from the city came in to investigate a rifle shot that was fired into the house. Oswald missed, but he got off a shot from the same rifle he used to kill the president. Who is General Walker? Well, he is a right-winger. Yes. He is the uh, president of the, or head of the local John Birch Society, which was a right-wing group. Correct. And then after taking off this pop at General Walker, Oswald leaves uh, uh, Texas for New Orleans, where a television station films him distributing leaflets in favor of Fidel Castro. And then before returning to, to Texas, Oswald visits Mexico City, where he tries to get a visa to go to Cuba, Fidel Castro's Cuba. Okay, so to what extent is Lee Harvey Oswald a Marxist and a communist? And to what extent is he a, just simply a very disturbed man who kind of latched onto that for, I don't know what, for some sense of meaning in his life? Uh, I, when I was together regularly with Lee, I kind of thought it was a pose. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an ordinary person, but I'm extraordinary in that I, as a 15-year-old, began reading Marx. Anyone who can read Marx at 15 is, that's uh, a rather strange, uh, strange thing. So um, I actually view this Cuba business and the New Orleans episode quite differently in that if you look at his writings, and uh, that's rather difficult with his spelling and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, he, he was really building, here's the way I'd put it. He tried the Soviet Union. It was the workers' paradise. It wasn't. I'm going to go to the United States. I'm going to be a celebrity there because I speak Russian. I've written a historic diary. That didn't work. Uh, the marriage was falling apart. Uh, so where is the grass greener? He's running out of greenery. Uh, and um, the grass is greener in Cuba. In Cuba... I need to make it so that they will welcome me with open arms in Cuba. And I, that, that was his goal in New Orleans, where he was recruiting for... He wanted to be a hero someplace. He, he, well, he wanted to get a visa right. as well. Uh, and so when he shows up in Mexico City, he brought with him various letters from people who have congratulated him on, on his recruiting. Uh, he was recruiting he, as a communist, as a as a pro Castro person. Let's right. put, so he he tries to display his pro Castro communist. And, and he took he right. took letters and and his his one recruit, by the way, was A. J. Hidel, if that rings a bell. It doesn't. I'm sorry. That's his pseudonym. Uh, that's Lee's moxie. He, he recruited himself as oh, his I only see. recruit. So that's a little bit of humor, if if one can find anything humorous about this. So uh, your, your question was, is it because he was a communist? Yes, he did spend time trying to learn uh, um, Marxist thought. Uh, he, he took it seriously, I believe. But this business about Cuba, I think, was purely, let's go to where the grass is greener. All right, so six decades later, when polls show that Americans still doubt that he acted alone. This book displays a man who is perfectly capable in his disturbed way of acting alone. Correct? Yes. All right. And six decades later, when there is still somehow this notion, we played a clip from JFK mm -hmm. about the conspiracy, but JFK also has a lot of um, references to the conservative or hateful atmosphere in Dallas. So that's still in that movie as well this notion that somehow or other John Kennedy was a martyr to some ugly right-wing or bigoted streak in America. And this book says, no, the man who killed him was, to the extent that he believed anything, a Marxist. Is that correct? Yes. All right. Paul, would you, you, you conclude by mentioning, I'm going to quote this from the Oswalds, I sent Marina, and er, Marina, who is still alive, remarried and has lived out of the public eye, 
one can imagine that if you yourself, having spent a summer with Lee Harvey Oswald, have remained mostly quiet about that for the last six decades, she wants to stay. She's led a, a reclusive life, I think that's fair yes. to say. I sent Marina an early draft of this book, and I spoke with her husband, who protects her from those who wish to exploit her. It was clear that he did not want me to speak with Marina. I respected his wishes. Instead, I decided to write Marina a letter to which I have received no response. Well, this is a full page, so the viewers have to be patient. Uh, I wrote, uh, Dear Marina, I talked to your husband, Ken. He said he would pass along my greetings. It has been more than 50 years since we saw each other. I went on to become a university professor. I thought you'd be interested what happened to me. A uh, university professor specializing in Russia. I have taught for almost 50 years at the University of Houston and have served as a fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University for 15 years. My historian colleagues, including Peter, uh, convinced me that I should write about my time together with you and Lee to help complete the historical record. I was one of the few who knew the two of you when you arrived, and we spent cons a considerable amount of time together, which I remember fondly, which is true. After November 22nd, 1963, I pretty much kept quiet about what had happened, as did my whole family. My father passed in 1982, my mother in 1987. It was only then that I was even able to think about writing this. I hope that you have had a good life in America after such a tragic start. Much my regards. Paul Gregory, author of The Oswalds, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.